Um, the IEA has told us that by 2040, lithium uh, uh, supplies will need to increase 42 times, 42 times what we have today if we are going to be on pace for the energy transition. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and partner, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hey, Scotty. Great to uh, great to be on the Canadian side of Canusa Street here in Toronto. That's right. We're here in Toronto, and I'm excited to talk to our distinguished guest, who you will introduce in a minute, the Undersecretary of State. Three of us are all here, along with a lot of other good friends of the Canada-U.S. relationship at a Eurasia Group Bank of Montreal Canada-U.S. Summit. And it comes at a wonderful time, just in the wake of a what I think was a very successful bilateral trip as the United States to Canada. And so so I want to hear what the undersecretary is going to talk about at the summit and kind of what he thinks about the bilateral relationship. So in order to get to that, Chris, why don't you introduce our esteemed guest? I would be honored, Scotty. Our guest today is Jose Fernandez, who's Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment. He took that job in August 6, 2021. And in that job, he leads the State Department's bureaus and offices that stand at the center of the Biden-Harris administration's efforts on climate change, clean energy, health, supply chain security, and other top economic priorities. Undersecretary Fernandez is also the U.S. United States alternate governor to the World Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the Inter-American Development Bank. And from 2009 to 2013, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Economic, Energy, and Business Affairs, one of the bureaus that he now oversees. That's a lot, but in order to get to that point, prior to his his appointment at the Department of State, he was a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, LLP in New York. His practice focused on mergers, acquisitions, finance in Europe, and emerging markets, advising U.S. and foreign clients in the telecoms, energy, water, banking, and consumer industries. He was named one of the world's leading lawyers by Chambers Global for his M&A and corporate work, a highly regarded practitioner by the International Financial Law Review, and one of the world's leading privatization lawyers by Euro Money Publication. So, Undersecretary Fernandez, you come highly recommended and you've got a very big job. So, thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you. Thank you, Chris and, and Scotty. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be back in, in Toronto. It's a, it's a great city and it reminds me of, of my hometown in New York. So, it's, it's great to be here. It's great to have you, Undersecretary. And, it, you know, your portfolio couldn't be any more relevant, I don't think, than it already was with the with the war in Ukraine, with the competition with China. Can you talk to us for a minute about how you think about the global energy situation, and in particular, the global energy situation when we think about the transition going forward to a clean economy? How do you how do you balance those things in your in your day to day portfolio? Scotty, we have we have a challenge. We actually have an existential threat, and that is climate change. And and if you if you read the IPCC reports that talk about the need to keep our temperature increases below one and a half degrees centigrade, and you see what we're doing, you realize that the urgency is is there. And 
So that's the need. And then we have challenges to, to get there. One of them is is how do we how do we achieve a, a net zero future, free net, net emissions free future by by twenty fifty? How do we do that in the electricity sector by twenty thirty five as President Biden has has told us we must do. And so that's how I think about it. And a lot of what we're doing, if not all of what we're doing, is looking for ways to achieve that goal at the same time that we realize that we are not going to to do this overnight, that it's that we need to do this gradually. And that at the same time as as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shown us, we need to find new sources of energy and we need to make sure that we that we diversify our supply chains going forward. So a lot of that is, it, it's related. It's a, it's a clean energy future. That's, and that's one big, big piece of, of my portfolio. At the same time that we also have to focus on security and resilience of supply chains. Well, absolutely. And, you know, part of part of the security and resilience of supply chains has to do with friend shoring, near shoring, ally shoring, when we think and of of energy, but also when we think about the transition from fossils, if you will, to minerals, critical minerals are used in solar panels and windmills, in electric vehicle batteries, and in a lot of other defense goods and everything else. So on that, my hobby horse over the last couple of years has been Canada is saying all the right things, Mr. Undersecretary, but not moving quickly enough for the pace of the private sector or the pace of other allies. Do you... Do you have a view on the pace of the transition and, and in particular, the Canada-U.S. cooperation on critical minerals in particular? The IEA, the, the International Energy Agency, has predicted that demand for the minerals that we need for the clean energy transition will increase by a factor of seven. And this, is, this becomes an even more expo- exponential increase when you focus on on lithium, graphite, manganese, and others, just by way of example, the IEA has told us that by 2040, lithium supplies will need to increase 42 times, 42 times what we have today if we are going to be on pace for the energy transition, if we are going to have the the the, the, the clean energy windmills, vehicles, and the like that we need to get to. That is a challenge. It's also an opportunity. Canada, as President Biden said in his address to Parliament, Canada has large quantities of critical minerals that are essential for, for this future, for the world's clean energy future. And that's an opportunity for, for Canada as well. So I think we have an opportunity to do what we've done for over 150 years, Canada and the U.S., and that is to work together for the benefit of both nations, and in this case, for the benefit of our children and grandchildren, because we have we have no choice. We have to get into a, to a clean energy future. And I think our alliance, our partnership, uh, will be a, a very, very significant piece of that going forward. Mr. Undersecretary, that's, that's a great place to start. And I, I wanted to maybe ask you if you could, for our listeners who really follow the Canada-U.S. piece of this, how is how is North America, or at least the Canada-U.S. parts, but Mexico too, positioned in terms of of critical minerals resources? Are do we have what we need within the continent, or do we need to really reach out to Latin America, Australia, other places, because we need so much of these minerals? Can you give us a bit of a geography of of what we need and where we can find it? So, um, 
there are over 50 critical minerals that have been identified by our governments as, 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 as being needed to, uh, to power the clean energy future. We have a lot of those. A lot of those are in, in Canada and and the U.S. But you know these are these are projects that take a long time to, to to come to fruition. In Latin America, you've got a number of countries that have significant deposits of lithium, for example, and, and others in in Africa as well. And I think what we are discovering is that we can't do this alone. This is a good a good example of needing the international cooperation of our allies, of our partners. And being able to to speak to mining countries, and by the way, Canada and the U.S. are also are both mining countries. But being able to speak to our to our neighbors in, in Latin America, to to countries in Africa, about the the opportunity, and also to try and think about how we do this in an environmentally responsible way, and that's something that I know is at the forefront of Canadian thinking with First Nations. It's also in the U.S. But it's also, you know, if you look at at, at, at examples of, of mining projects in in some parts of the world, they have run into, into problems with communities because communities realize that they're not benefiting from from the mining, that, that they're being they're being asked to choose be, between environmental degradation and economic growth. And that's a false choice that nobody should have to make. It also means that you, you get a lot of opposition in some parts of, of, uh, of the developing world to mining projects, even after they have broken ground because communities realize that this is not, they're not benefiting from this. So we, knew, we need to do this in a, in a responsible way, which is why we have promoted from day one, you know, following the highest DSG principles. And I'm sure you'll want to talk about the, the Mineral Security Partnership, where the U.S. and Canada have been two of the founding countries. But basically, what, what, what we need to find is a way to make sure that communities benefit and that we do this in an environmentally sustainable manner. And that's that's our calling card. That is what we will pursue going forward. Well, and I'll follow up on that because I've heard about the Mineral Security Partnership. And before that, there was a Canada-U.S. Joint Action Plan on Critical Minerals. Help me understand where the Mineral Security Partnership builds on that. And is it is it something of a, of a producer's cartel, or is it something more like a better business bureau, sort of best practice group in trying to develop these minerals and, and move us forward? So the, the Mineral Security Partnership was launched last year here in Toronto. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to, to note that, that Canada was a founding partner in the Mineral Security Partnership. From early on, we we discussed it with our, our, our friends here, and they, they, they were ready to, to partner with us. The MSP, at the end of the day, is a way for countries that are prepared to invest prepared to finance critical mineral projects anywhere, including in, 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 in countries that are members of the ESP, such as Australia, Canada, and the U.S. But it, it's a group of countries that are prepared to invest in and, and finance projects, to share information about projects, to share financing, to share investing in projects, and to do so while making sure that we set in motion a, a race to the top a race to the top in, in environmental, social, and governance standards. And, you know, we've been very clear that we are not going to engage, the, our, the, our countries are not going to engage 
in, in a race to the bottom, frankly, because we, we know that we cannot win that race. We know that there will always be others who are willing to do things that our companies are just not prepared to do. We have, there are 13 partners in the MSP, Australia, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Korea, Norway, Sweden, the U- ourselves in the U.S. and the European Commission. And together, we are going to partner on projects. And we were looking at specific projects now where our our, our companies will be involved or our financing institutions will be involved and where our governments will basically have the back of, of, of companies that are willing to follow the highest ESG standards. ESG standards, by the way, because there's, there's all, Chris, a, a, a fair amount of cynicism as to what we mean by this. And we've actually, we put, the, put it out in black and white. We, a couple of months ago, we actually published what we meant by ESG principles. So we're willing, we're willing to live by our examples and we're willing to, uh, to be criticized for not following them. But we, we believe, and this is something that the 13 partner countries have been, have been adamant about, that we're going to do this right. We're going to do it in a way that benefits countries at the same time that it supports the clean energy transition and that countries are able and communities are able to take advantage of what I think is is a, is a is an opportunity that 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 is going to be rare in our lifetime, and, and this is one that we want to make sure that we do right. Well, I I couldn't agree with you more that this is a once in a lifetime or generational opportunity to redefine, you know, as you say, an ancient or an old 150 or a couple hundred year old industry, energy and resource development. So this is an interesting conversation. We're going to take a little break, Mr. Undersecretary. And when we come back, I want to I want to flip it a little bit and ask you, given your role, what keeps you up at night? So let's take a little break and we'll be right back. The Wilson Center's Canada Institute is a proud co-producer of the Canusa Street Podcast. For more insights and analysis from the world's leading think tank on Canada-U.S. relations, please visit us on the web at www.wilsoncenter.org. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm here with my co-host, Scotty Greenwood, and we're talking to Undersecretary Jose Fernandez, Undersecretary of State Jose Fernandez, who is leading the Biden administration's efforts tackling critical, critical minerals and really trying to, uh, to lead a public-private coalition to get good minerals to the market. Scotty, you were about to ask a question when we went to the break. Right. Mr. Undersecretary, given your global portfolio and your experience both in the private sector, but now importantly in the United States Department of State, what what keeps you up at night? Oh, great question. What keeps me up at night? I, I think, look, when you get to a certain age, as I have, you start thinking of your children and your grandchildren. And I worry that we're being challenged in some of the norms that have led to a remarkable seven decades plus of peace around the world and economic growth and where we've brought together countries around the world that brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and we haven't had a a, a massive war since, since, world war, since world war ii what keeps me up at night first and foremost is the the brutal invasion of ukraine by Russia, which goes beyond beyond the invasion of one single country, it's it's flouting the the first article that we all think about of international 
of the international order, thou shalt not invade another country for territorial gain. Those norms are, are being broken as we speak. And then and, and what will happen there is something that, that keeps me up at night. The fact that we have to get to a clean energy future and that we're running out of time. What will, what's our role? What can we do to remedy that situation? In both cases, I think we've got existential challenges. And I'm, I'm very happy to, to, to always focus on the positive. And the positive is we're seeing the international community come together on Ukraine. We're seeing incredible valor on the part of the Ukrainians. And on, on, on climate change, we're seeing countries be, you know, more and more be convinced that we need to do the right thing. You can add to that you know, what we just went through in terms of COVID. We have to be prepared for the next pandemic. We don't know when it will happen, but we know we will face one of what we do going forward together to make sure that, that we are prepared for that next pandemic is something that also keeps me up at night. So that's, those are, you know, those are three things that probably will, will lead to insomnia. But I think, you know, we're working hard to make sure that, that, that we can look our children and grandchildren in the eye and say we've done our best. And that's, that's what keeps me up at night and also wakes me up in the morning. <laughs> it's a great challenge and a great opportunity. Mr. Undersecretary, can I ask you a question about prices? I know that the Chinese, our Chinese friends, have the ability to flood the market with critical minerals and undermine the economics of a mining project. And as they showed with Japan back in 2011, the ability to withhold supplies to create chaos for our markets. They're definitely not a uh, always in fair, a fair player in these markets. How do we insulate these projects from those kind of price manipulations that seem, you know, designed to put uh, whatever we do in some sort of jeopardy economically? And is there a role for government in in trying to create a, I don't know, an, an environment in which these projects can go forward on an economic basis? Chris, that brings us back to the Mineral Security Partnership. We've got we've got both a need and a problem. I've talked about the need, how we are going to have to increase exponentially our, our supplies of critical minerals for us to to be able to meet, to have a chance of meeting our, our climate goals. The problem is that right now, 60% plus of critical mi mineral mining around the world is either owned or operated by the Chinese, 60 plus percent. And over 80%, in fact, close to 85% of the processing is done by, by the Chinese. That is a supply chain vulnerability that actually was pointed out by President Biden early in, in his term. I think it, the, one of his first executive orders when he took office was on critical minerals. We've got to address that. We've got to, we've got to make sure that that, uh, that that vulnerability is, is dealt with. We cannot afford it. We've seen, you, you pointed out the Japan example, but we're seeing it now in, in Ukraine with Russia, its, its willingness to weaponize energy. Well, you know, the, the access to critical minerals can be can be also weaponized, and we, we've got to address it. And what are we selling? We're selling a group of, of, of partners, a group of like-minded partners, who are willing to say to producing countries, this is an opportunity for you. And we will, our value proposition is that we will do all that we can to make sure that you benefit from this proposition and we will not make you choose between destroying your environment or ruining your communities and, and feeding your children. That is, 
you know, we're, we're making it bad. Um, a bet that there are people out there who would say we, you know, has never been made. And that is, you hear a lot of from developing countries that they want to do things right. Well, this is our chance to, to help them do it. Amazing. And and in that regard, you mentioned processing. And I know the processing of, of many of these critical minerals has to be done in a very careful way so that you don't have any environmental side effects. Canada's critical mineral strategy includes the ambition not just to produce minerals as a commodity, but to also get involved in processing. And I know that is going to take a lot of private sector investment to make that work. How important is the processing piece in the Mineral Security Partnership as you see it? It's central. We we are now looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, of, of a dozen to 15 projects, about half of them involve what, what's called value added, and that is beyond beyond mining you know that's where that's where countries in africa in latin america anywhere they don't want to just become mining countries they they want to be adding value they we are for example uh, working now with uh, the democratic republic of the congo they to see if we can help them build a an electric vehicle on their hmm. border they want to take their minerals and do something with it because there's there's added value, and there are countries out there that are saying, unless you are willing to invest in our countries in in value-added processing and 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 beyond, we won't let you mine. We we need some. We need to become something more than simply a mining mining country. We've got to do. We've got to be able to. That requires workforce development. It requires a type of investment, but that's what they want, and that is. I think it's also a competitive advantage on our end because we've seen countries, I mean, the PRC is one of them, but it's not the only one, who are basically will take the, the minerals and process them at home. And that, that's exactly what countries around the world are, are telling us they don't want to see. Well, that that's exactly right. And uh, we're coming to the end of our time here. You've been so generous. And we're, we're also looking forward to seeing you here at this conference in Toronto and and I think I'll just ask if you if there's anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with in terms of the your message here in Toronto and 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 what you think Canada and the United States should should really pay attention to in the coming weeks and months. Well, you know, something I I would I think it's, sometimes it's important to step back and and you lose sight of the big picture. The U.S. and Canada have been friends, partners, and allies for more than 150 years. Our bilateral relationship is one of the closest and most comprehensive in the world. I think we have the longest contiguous border of, it, of any two countries in the world. As, as the president stated during his visit a couple of weeks ago here, we have no closer and no more important friend than Canada. And, you know, as I go around the world, something I learned is that our, our, our neighborhood is the envy of the world. We yes, have, indeed. If you look north, we have Canada. If you look south, we have Mexico. We have our differences. We solve those differences. And that's rare because borders as long and, and as busy as, as we have with Canada and Mexico often lead to conflict. And we just don't, we don't, I mean, we have our differences, but we don't have that kind of a conflict. We've got our two best trading partners in our neighborhood. And that's something we are, we in the U.S. are very grateful for. And I think we've got to make sure that we take advantage of the potential uh, of our common neighborhood. 
Well, well, amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, thank you for giving me the chance to just remind ourselves of, of our of our blessing, our neighbors. Perfectly well said, mm-hmm. and thank you so much for for joining us here on Canusa Street. It's great to have you, and we'll look forward to following your your remarks here in Toronto, and then we'll see you back at home in D.C. one of these days. Thank you very much, Scotty and Chris. Take care. Well, Chris, it's not every day we get to talk to the Undersecretary of State. Terrific conversation. He didn't exactly answer my question about pace, like is the United States officially impatient with Canada's pace on development of critical minerals? But he is a diplomat after all, so I'm going to let him off the hook on that one, and I'll be the one that pounds my fist about about the pace, and uh, we'll let him say all the diplomatic things that he needs to say. But I thought it was terrific. Well, and I think he's he's definitely a good diplomat. He's pulled together a lot of countries. Canada's one of the easy ones, generally shares the, the worldview, and I think it's exciting that Canada's part of this and that it's a new feature of the Canada-US relationship. And I have to say, Scotty, I think you raised this for me as far back as 2017, 2018, as one of the the great things that was on the horizon that would make a difference in the Canada-US relationship. You were way ahead of most of us, and now it's nice to see the government moving at the speed of Scotty Greenwood and uh, and Uh, bringing some good things forward. No, no, (laughs) no. They're not there yet. No, no, they're still catching up to you. I was going to say I'm pretty slow, but I'm nowhere near as slow as the government. You know, (laughs) I have been banging the drum on Canada-U.S. collaboration on critical minerals for quite some time, but I don't take credit for inventing the idea. That credit goes to David McNaughton. He was Canada's ambassador to the United States, and he was trying to figure out a way to make Canada relevant to the United States, particularly in the context of the U.S. competition with China. And he came up with this idea on critical minerals. He was right then. He's right now. <laughs> and uh, and now, I mean, the, the challenge for Canada, and we heard the undersecretary allude to it, is if it doesn't move quickly enough, if it doesn't give permitting certainty while upholding its excellent standards in terms of these processing facilities for minerals, it's Canada is going to get left in the dust by like any other ally. So that's the, you know, we'll see how it goes and we'll see how it goes at this conference and see if, see if anybody else agrees with me on the, on the question of pace. Well, and maybe next we can have Ambassador McNaughton come back and, and give his score on how things are going. He's a great person. And it would be nice to hear from him as well. That'd be great. Good idea. All right. Well, always good to see you, especially in this pop-up edition, Toronto, Canusa Street. And I look forward to more of these, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you, Scotty. And it's great to, great to see you in Toronto again. Great to be back on Canusa Street. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Centre. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.